Hello, my name is Anna, and thank you for watching another episode of AI Unleashed Beyond the Code podcast. Happy Labor Day. Everyone, be safe out there. Today, we will talk about everything Halloween because it's coming up. So sit back and enjoy. And if you're not subscribed to my channel, what are you waiting for? It's free. Tales of Terror to Read While the Moon is Low, a cover of Dan David's The Swing by Jeff Clement, authored by Dan David. Jeff Clement's narration. What are the most common worries among first-time renters? When a person leaves the comfort of his or her parents' house for the first time, what kinds of difficulties can they face? On their own, whether it's making sure they pay their rent on time or handling all the household chores without. These were the things I thought I'd never be able to accomplish without my mother's assistance. The events of the preceding week could have been foretold. I had just finished moving the last box into my, the new ranch-style home. I'm looking at has only two bedrooms, but that's fine because I'm a bachelor. It was a dream come true. The house was in a fantastic suburban community, had a two-car driveway, and had plenty of room for a growing family. When I initially saw the yard, my first thought was, wow, that's a big backyard. I strolled out onto the deck, closed my eyes, and took a deep breath, thinking about all the parties I was planning to host. Just try to fathom the countless late-night sessions of friends, booze, and women where I extended my, as I inspected my environment with open arms and a sigh of relief. I couldn't help but observe that the deck's height afforded me a good look into the backyards of my neighbors. I figured I'd take a stab at it now that I haven't formally met any of them and see who I can identify. Am I right in thinking that if my parties were too rowdy, there would be a serious danger that someone would call 911? With their flourishing garden, barbecue, and hammock, I assumed they were an older couple. As I turned to look at my neighbors to the left, I prayed they weren't too old and cranky. When I found him sitting beneath a giant oak, a figure, apparently a small child, was dangling from a garland of Christmas lights. Fantastic, I thought. He's playing happily on his toy. I'll bet his bedtime is a... I kept staring at the boy long after the party I was throwing would have ended. I noticed that he was wearing a hoodie and gloves, even though he was turning his back on me. It was the middle of summer, so I ignored it because I thought the... the sick boy sent me back inside, where I unpacked with the aid of the others. With the help of my pals, we were able to assemble all of my furniture set up my home theater, and do much more. The less time you waste getting the house in order, the more I drank my beer and jumped from the couch exclaiming, party tonight! The guys laughed and started to by this time. The sun had set and there was much rejoicing and a round of high fives. Dan, my friend, was unpacking one of the last of my things after we had been there for several hours. Boxes as he eagerly gazed out the window asking, have you met your neighbors yet? Any fine young ladies going to be coming soon? In a mocking tone, he asked if anyone knew where he could borrow some sugar. Gestured sexually and walked close to me, to which I said, No, no, I get however it doesn't look like I'll be successful in that endeavor. I was able to point out one of the families and explain that they were just like any other group of people. My face wrinkled up in a confused and surprised expression as I remembered the house and the youngster I'd seen earlier swinging from a tree, the atmosphere from earlier he had been swinging in. 
When we initially arrived, the kid was swinging from a tiny tree. Here too, I added to Dan, who was distracted by his phone. In response to the commenters, must be special ed kid or something, mumbling and subsequent cry for more police, the man walked away. When I turned back to the swinging boy, he was busy texting his friends about the housewarming celebration. I mean, he couldn't have been on the swing the whole time, could he? I recently celebrated my Harris warming party, and it was fantastic. We hung out outside with cousins as they arrived, offering each person a drink of their choosing until maybe three or four in the afternoon. Morning, when the temperature dropped unexpectedly and it started to sprinkle, I would have waited it out until it was dry. Finally ended, but the women started to panic that their hair would frizz and rush inside. The boys trailed behind, covering the girls' heads with homemade umbrellas. I had a good laugh at how desperately they were trying their luck, and I used the time to tidy up a bit. Before entering, I picked up a number of cans and bottles from the gathered garbage and brought them inside, and remained inside. Ha ha. I don't know. We were too sloshed to notice. Before, but now that everyone was inside, I could see that the youngster had not moved at all. He was outside, swinging in the same position and clothes as I'd seen him in earlier. I stood there all day with my back to him as he wore the same hoodie and gloves I did. I had been thinking for a minute when I was startled by a neighbor's shouted, Hiya! I abruptly turned around, dumping the garbage I'd been carrying. Bud is sorry if he startled you with the old man's laugh. He was dressed in pajamas and slippers and stuck out his hand for a shake. And, wonderful, I shook his hand and introduced myself after clearing my throat. He mumbled, I hate to be that guy, especially when I'm smiling and fumbling with my hands. You people must be kidding yourselves if you believe you can turn down the welcome music a little bit. My wife and I are generally light sleepers, and at our age we have a tendency to want us to be early birds, he blushed and I giggled nervously while covering my face with my hand. I'm sorry, Hajis, but I think things got a little heated there, crazier than expected. I truly did felt awful. I just stayed for half the time. I had anticipated the man to come out shouting, telling us to be quiet, or he'd call the police. So his calm approach was a pleasant surprise. With a hearty laugh, I said, all right, I'll go let everybody in. Recognized the need to remain indoors and tone things down, I introduced myself as Peter, and he shook my hand. Paul, it's nice to meet you, Peter, he smiled. He looked behind me and to the youngster who was swinging. He smiled and said, I take it you've seen him before. Paul, huddling his hands together for warmth, murmured, You must have noticed the drowsy kid by now, huh? I swiveled around to face him and asked, Yeah, but what's the issue with him? He's been on this weird, Paul shrugged, doubting that anyone has heard the narrative he's been telling all day. Swings and more swings, till Paul finally paused, waiting with his eyes wide. I did a double take and saw the boy was vanished. He ceased his swing and remained still for a while before getting to his feet, violently shook the swing's rubber seat, sending him down to his knees where he scraped his despite being on solid ground. We could still hear his short, shrill gurgles from the earth below him. Thought the youngster could be experiencing an asthma attack and worried for him, I attempted to run to the youngster to aid, but I stopped after taking a few steps in case it was an attack or a seizure. I glanced at her, 
sober from adrenaline, after his mother left. It was pulsing through my veins, who I was not a pretty sight. She was an elderly. She was a pale, haggard woman with a mane of gray, tangled hair. She appeared to have neither slept or eaten in a while. Heavy circles beneath her eyes gave that impression. Mrs. Langer, who hadn't had a full meal in years, hurried out the door with a small orange in her hand. Bottle of the pharmacy variety whenever she got to her boy, she dropped to one knee and offered her several white tablets, which he emptied into her hand before she could finish accepting them. After taking the pills, he buried his face in the palm of her hand, son, and gripped her arm. Mrs. Langer recoiled, rubbing her wrist as if the youngster had harmed her. Paul and I were surprised by her, but her thinness did not surprise us. After a couple of minutes of silent observation, the the child got back up, sat back down on the swing, and continued playing. Mrs. Langer, indulging in a leisurely pastime, reached for the empty orange bottle, and Paul and I were both frightened, and she went back inside while still grasping her wrist. What the heck did we just see? I've saw the lads freak out before, but never like that. Paul massaged the back of his head and sighed. Poor kid. His is getting worse. Exactly what is wrong with him, I questioned in my brain. Keeping my gaze fixed on the kid because, as I've already admitted, I don't recognize anyone here. Here does, Paul said as he returned to his house through the door. Anyway, my Peter... I know your wife is probably worrying about you, but I hope you have a pleasant night. I sighed as I tried to put my thoughts in order, and then I remembered that I had met Paul. I was relieved to see the party winding down as I walked in the door and gave everyone a final wave before heading home. After seeing what I did, I was exhausted the next day. I woke up with a throbbing head, the result of the excessive amounts of alcohol I had consumed the night before. I got up out of the dry heat and my lips and throat immediately began to burn. Throat was suddenly replaced by nausea, sending me running to the restroom. And sank to my knees, holding the toilet bowl for dear life, I decided to use my rest day to pick up a sports drink I had stashed away. I prepared for my hangover by putting it in the bathroom the night before and drinking it all in one sitting. I'd experienced this before, so I knew what to expect after taking a few gulps. Within a few minutes, I started to throw up and almost immediately felt better. Enough to have a really productive day. I had planned on vegging out with movies, video games, and junk food after a particularly taxing week at work. After laying around in a semi-conscious condition for a few of hours, I finally heard the mailman arrive. Door. But I was too engrossed in my current zombie-watching marathon to get up and answer it. Seeing such graphic violence certainly wasn't the best use of your time. My stomach felt like it was on fire, but I forced myself to keep going. I went into the kitchen, threw in a few episodes, and sat down to watch them. I popped a huge microwavable TV meal into the oven, and after it was done, I decided to bring in the I stood at the door and grabbed up the mail I had received earlier after unlocking it to let in some much-needed fresh air. I was sorting through the invoices and trash mail in my mailbox when I noticed a package had arrived. I brought the little box inside, removed the tape, and did a quick scan. But all I saw was a 
The same miniature orange bottle that my next-door neighbor was carrying around last night was perplexed and looked around the package the mailman had delivered for a label. I let out an exasperated groan as I realized I'd gone to the incorrect residence. To dress up and go somewhere, much less meet my new neighbors and break the news to them in an unpleasant way that I have medications for their strange youngster, and I spotted the kid from my back window, was swaying as normal when I heard the microwave alarm signaling that my meal was ready. I gave the kid one more look and told myself the drugs could wait. I set the bottle of pills aside and walked into the kitchen after discovering that the boy had wolfed down six of them the night before. I grew sleepy and eventually dozed off after dinner. I was awakened by the constant ruckus outside my house. The darkness had fallen when I heard the distant beeping of a large truck in reverse. I got home and the only light on was the one in the bathroom. When I turned on my now-off TV, all I saw was a drab gray with a whirl of red and blue. Blue light streaming in through my windows created a weird image. I climbed to my feet and scanned my surroundings. Then I realized I must have been dreaming. Looking out my front window, a large group was congregated on my front lawn. Their backs to the eye threw on a light coat to cover my mess as I ran to the ambulance waiting in the Langer driveway. Paul, you can bet that I'd been stewing in the mob all day and that it smelled nasty. Stood amid what I assumed to be locals. Hey, Paul! I yelled as I introduced myself. I coughed out some gunk, but what the heck is still up with his eyes? Watch the unfolding drama next door and respond. Well, we're not quite... Yes, we fear that something terrible has happened in the home. Mister, I noticed how concerned Langer seemed to be while he was on the phone with a paramedic. Paul's referred to man, Mr. Langer, appeared to have a similar physique type to that of his wife. Was diminished in barren, he sported a baggy tank top that exposed his emaciated frame. His ribs protruded through the taut skin of his torso, and he paced back and forth nervously. I turned to see him hurriedly hiding his eyes and mumbling to himself. I was still staring at the distraught man when the murmurs of the throng suddenly became shouts. I heard a flurry of screaming and ran to the door of the Langer home. Two police officers came out of the house, and I felt a rush of crimson throughout my body. By a medic who rolled out a gurney, the gurney's top was covered in blood. From where we stood, we could see Mrs. Langer's motionless body could see the poor woman's blood flowing down her pale, bruised wrists as she hung from the side. Her head bounced when the paramedic touched it, and it started to twitch. I turned to Paul, who was also standing on the ambulance's back, and pressed an oxygen mask to her face as we lifted the gurney inside. One of the officers made his way through the mob by standing on the tips of his feet, at our growing mob of men and women who are yelling at us to go home. The cop was suddenly surrounded by curious onlookers who all wanted to know what had transpired. People, if they were secure, you would not have need to be concerned. Upon locating and eliminating the coyotes responsible for Mrs. Langer's backyard attack, the cop said, I've neutralized the animals. But he avoided making direct eye contact with anyone, making his lie obvious. I showed him my hand, clenched between his teeth, over the rest of the crowd. And what was that about? When I asked the police officer if the youngster was harmed, he gave me an annoyed expression and then cleared his throat and said, I'm not in the area where the... We're assuming he felt afraid during the attack scenario and fled for his life. 
Please contact 911 if you spot the child while we search for him. The cop almost raced back to his vehicle as he abruptly turned his back on the dissatisfied crowd. When I gave Paul the dismayed look, he just smiled apathetically and turned around. After the crowd thinned down, I waited for a second before he patted me on the back and headed inside. Was I to blame? Or did external factors play a role? Tablets, I pushed aside the irrational ideas that had been running through my head and walked. I slipped open the front door to my house and went back inside. I slid down and cut my hands around my head, closing the door behind me as a flood of feelings flooded my body. As I considered my options, I was acutely aware that I needed to flush the tablets from my system. Harse. Even though I knew the odds were against me, I refused to let anyone else take the responsibility. I knew I was guilty of at least one crime when I didn't turn in the tablets right away. I committed a federal offense when I opened someone else's mail without permission. I hastily retrieved the medication from my couch and secretly deposited the box in the Langer's mailbox. I looked out the rear window and saw that the Christmas lights in the oak tree were shining as brightly as before, illuminating the gruesome scene outside. The crime scene was concealed by a layer of blood and torn garments, the ground, and that's where I noticed the boy's gloves and hoodie. Disaster. My stomach dropped. I was certain the guy either dead or at least gravely hurt, and when I realized this, I felt tears welling up in my eyes. I pounded on the windowsill and heard a loud crash. I had been completely silent in my house since entering the strikingly different environment outside. In the midst of the depressing silence, I heard a sound that accentuated the subsequent terrible silence. I hardly had time to freeze when I heard the low, spine-tingling gurgle coming from my bedroom. I held my breath and listened carefully for something else to, to my chagrin. I picked up on it again, the next. The vile rumbling is getting louder and more threatening. The only thing on in my house save my faint aura was a growling silence. Something emanated from the off-screen TV. I froze, but my body fought back. Despite my rational mind's best efforts, my innate drive to move kicked in as my eyes. It was dark, and I had to decide whether to fight or get away from whatever was in my home very quickly. Flight overdriving, and I grabbed out my phone to book it. I struggled for my phone's flashlight app as my eyes adjusted to the dim light outside my back door. I was staring down the corridor that led from the living room to my bedroom when I spotted it. I could hardly make out any of the creature's features as it crept down the hall. It had, human-like it, moved on all fours, which was both creepy and disconcerting. I saw how clumsily its limbs swung and how low its head was to the floor. Horrible gurgle again, and saw the monster sniffing the ground. And when I think back on what transpired after that, I still shudder. The flashlight app I'd launched was fully loaded and activated via the... The phone's brilliant light pierced the night and illuminated the grotesque form. Do you ever have that feeling in the midst of a nightmare where you just want to throw up? Become convinced that you aren't actually experiencing what you think you are and beg yourself to snap out of it, that bottomless pit of misery. I could feel it in my bones, the languid boy with the hearing aid standing before me, 
I was able to look through the bulk of his garments and see that he was not a typical kid. His body was covered in wrinkles and scars, and his skin looked old and worn. Our eyes shifted to meet his as he slowly turned his head toward the light. The worst part was that no matter how deep the shadows were under his mother's eyes, they, in order to compete with the boys, he painted the area around his eyes black. I could as well have been blinded by the iris's strange tint and my own dilated pupils. I felt like I was standing on concrete. All my mobility had stopped and I couldn't do anything but stare. The boy turned his body slowly so that I could view what was happening in front of me in my direction, and they started to approach me. Bloody prints can be seen where his hands made contact with the wood grain on my floor. Before I knew it, he was standing less than a foot away from me. Neither he nor I made a sound the entire time. My thoughts were jumbled with panic, and I was sure I was going to pass out before I ever had a chance to act. The kid got up out of his crouching, animal-like position and stood up straight. Up, He hung his arms at his side and stared fixedly at me. He was so terrified that he could only move slowly as he attempted to avert his gaze from mine, immediately transferred the hand still holding the pill container to mine. As he saw what I was holding, he let out a devilish scream that broke the tension, a howl, banshee-like. His jaw dropped and his mouth moved, rousing me from my daze. Down, he stooped, still facing the kid, until his mouth was level with mine. The little blade is still in his mouth, despite the gaping display of his broken teeth. Fragmented pieces of his mother's flesh that I imagined were his arm toward me, and uncurled his blood-stained hand. At once, I recognized the sign of danger. When my voice shook you, he was chasing you. You paid all your payments on time, and he just kept staring at me. I raised my hand and started without hesitation. I poured six pills into the small orange container and opened it with trembling hands. Into the kid's hand, waited a minute for which she had no clock, and then gave up. May proceed so slowly that I was simply hoping he'd leave so the kid would stop talking. He turned with a sly grin on his face and disappeared behind the curtain. Door, he sent a last glance over to me as he leaned back to finish his drink. He gulped down the medicines I had given him, opened the door, and continued his journey. I followed him back to his safe haven and observed as he sat on his swing, started rocking back and forth as though nothing unusual had happened. I locked my back door before I passed out, but it's been a long day. Mrs. Langer's condition has not improved in the past week despite my returning the medication as arranged. Situation and her mysterious pill-giving hubby has taken over. Son, any time he may require them, I have never been questioned about the events of that night. The event was not reported because I am leaving soon, possibly for an apartment in. Dreams and dread of city life when there are no backyards or playground equipment. My thoughts from that night's party have run amok, and my backyard is still a disaster. Because of this, I have not returned to clean up the area. The fact that ever since that terrifying evening, the boy has made sure to swing with my at home. His eerie eyes stare at me every time I look out the window. The boy's father was the last person I saw before he disappeared into mine as he smiled that terrible smile. Mr. Langer's medication was running low, so the nurse came out to give him another dose, his final three-liter bottle. 
This morning, I woke up to exactly what I saw when I looked out my window a few nights ago. Silent sway, sound, Michael T. Guidry's Warwood Elementary, played by Nick Goroff. Michael Guidry's Warwood Elementary play, performed by Nick. In terms of playing golf, I'm at a loss. To introduce myself, I'm Alex, and I'm 22 years old. I went to a tiny Georgia elementary school called War from 1999 until 2003. About 300 children attended Wood Elementary, which was secular and private. Some. At the time, my parents were divorced, and I was an only child. After the breakup, I got to see my dad, and my mom got engaged to her new lover. But they never wed. I met a guy in kindergarten named Tony, and I don't remember much about my first year of war. I won't waste your time. We stayed friends until I moved in 2004. Great the year 2000, I won't waste your time with meaningless anecdotes about my life, but I will start with the unusual stuff. Mrs. Anderson, who was in her 30s and had short hair, taught Tony and me while we were in elementary school. Had a late-life makeover that made her appear like Jamie Lee Curtis and was incredibly nice and kind. Her students were universally adored, yet each grade level had a unique recess schedule. Would the world add pre-K, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd graders at 11.30 a.m., 12 p. Our playground seemed small until the 5th graders were added between 12 and 12.30. A playground island with a slide, bridge, ladders, and monkey bars was available for use by the smaller students. And behind it, a large plastic rock dome covered in tiny dinosaur bones. Tony and I used to meet at this place called the Dino Dome to talk about two of our best buddies from second grade, Scotty and Phil, our brothers named Scotty and Phil, respectively. During my first year of elementary school, you were in the fourth grade, and Phil's sister was in the fifth. Scotty was certain that his brother Mark had been assigned the bad chair in my grade, and the news spread like wildfire throughout the school. I was told about the awful chair during lunch right after recess when I was put there. I overheard a boy named Eddie whispering to his friend Alex about it, but the uncomfortable chair caused me to respond to both adults and youngsters with a shaky head. Were actions rather than words, I had trouble expressing myself. You're curious about the the teacher's lounge chair by the locker area for the females I concurred was horrible. A modest staff room and break area for instructors. The teacher's place. Place most likely had a fridge in the stall. And I nodded once more. Well, some youngster claims to have seen what's within, claiming an additional door exists where none should. I had always assumed that no student, alive or dead, had ever sung in front of their teacher. He was on his way back to Mrs., and I couldn't believe he had to stop and use the restroom. He claims to have witnessed a teacher enter Mr. Tudor's classroom, and when entering, he found a table, chairs, and a second door. You know, J-Boy, that's where the awful chair is, and I still don't know what's wrong with it. The entire fourth grade was aware of the troublemaking J-Guy. That week, he was kicked out of school for misbehaving. Uh Uh-huh. I remember how I screwed up. Mrs. Ludlow. After last week's events at Keith's workstation, in which he lit all of the tests on fire using his Boy Scout gear, okay, so he got expelled, which is even worse than detention. Condescendingly, Eddie laughed. That's what they want you to think, aren't they? 
The youngster, according to his teachers, no longer resides in this area. He has relocated to the hospital, chair, and then lunch was done, leaving me with an insatiable appetite for more information. In regards to the unsatisfactory chair, it was likely a Friday. And after the weekend arrived, and I asked my pals in the Dino Dome if they knew anything about the infamous bad chair, and fate had a hand in bringing us together. Told me about that, but he only gave me the gist, and I think it's a lie, Doni said, folding his arms. When he finally got to the good stuff, he asked, What's the matter with this chair? Steve, a very sick fifth grader, peeped his bald head inside the Dino Dome as he was lapped by his classmates. The awful chair conversation at recess was unprecedented for a fifth grader. It's hard for any fifth grade student, even a superstar like Steve, to communicate with first graders. Everyone stopped moving, astonished to have his attention, but unsure of why they shouldn't tell the teachers. Tighten up, you may be sent there. Steve peered around the playground, inside the dinosaur dome, and knows what's going to happen next. Why the gloomy disposition? You all, it's somewhat hurried at the moment, wanting just to know whether or not the darn thing was true beneath the school. There's a secret entrance in the faculty lounge that only the fifth graders know about. The lounge is far too posh for our lecturers, so what can I do there? Asked awkward questions, to which my companion's gasps and silence on the fifth Steve Oliver didn't seem to mind that he was being watched by Domas the next time he looked out the diner's window. I wanted to make sure no teachers were there, so I asked if anyone knew who J-Boy was, and we all said, yeah, we do. We wouldn't have heard about the batch air if it weren't for him, thus he deserves to be called a hero. Been here for quite some time, but he manages to get out of here alive. Lucky didn't really take J-Boy into the principal's office after he did all that horrible stuff everyone in the class sings about getting sent out to the hallways for. Room with a horrible chair, and you know all this because, Tony, you were in the lounge, and whomever was in the lounge brought him down the stairs. Interrupted, he informed his best friend Finn in my class about it, and Finn shared his skepticism. He claimed, before he lost it, that the room they put him in was pitch black other from the floor candles. The wooden chair in the center is the terrible one. He was bound to it with a number of leather straps. Phil flinched. Steve scowled at the sight of a human skull where their head normally would be. Nonetheless, no one responded. So, here's what I... They were encouraged to start dancing, so they did. Steve merely shook his head, and I couldn't help but believe this was all a setup for a hilarious joke. The images he saw in his mind of their twisted and bent dance moves didn't make him laugh. Inexplicable methods. They were all dressed in black, muttering and staring at him. Yelled, how'd he get out, Tony? But no one could hear him since he was too far down. Steve swallowed as though you were present, and he looked a little uneasy. Something more than himself joined them as they said hello to Mrs. Chandra's recess. Mrs. Shonda was shocked by our screams as the waitress entered the diner. Steve's usual white face become even whiter as he told horror stories to the kids. Shonda Rast, the TV hostess, nodded and smiled at the camera. 
I'm hoping Steve shook his head since it wasn't scary because none of us were looking at her. Stephen, I assume you'll be waiting here with the rest of us until the kids head back to class in five minutes, right? Any more horror stories? No, ma'am. Good, very, responded Steve almost mechanically. Steve smiled at Mrs. Chandra as she patted one of us on the back and departed. He looked like he was about to cry, and he raced out of the dinosaur exhibit. Steve was unremarkable and unreactive in the days after our conversation. His repeated medical stays were cited by pupils as the reason he was away the most. Therefore, my pals do not suspect foul play. But Tony did ask some pertinent questions about the J-Boy scenario, including why. Why weren't his parents intervening? Surely someone had warned them about everything that had been going on. There have been tales about a horrible chair, and if other children have been assigned to this batch, then surely they would recall, perished or disappeared. As evidenced by the widespread reports of both in the past, we learned occasional information from kids in our grade, typically from fourth and fifth graders, concerning the infamous bad chair. Apparently, if the malfunctioning chair did its job, you wouldn't remember any of it was the reason why the J-Kid felt he needed to remember every detail the first time something bad happened to him. We're the fourth and fifth graders. Everyone else has left, and they don't even realize it. A few months have passed, and I'm still in the dark about the source of the intelligence I received. When the noise from Bad Chair and J-Boy subsided, a Prince Nur Abner informed us that Steve had spent his final months in the hospital struggling valiantly against cancer, but had ultimately succumbed to the disease. Tony reasoned that the terrible tale about the awful chair had been concocted by the fifth graders to scare us. When we were younger, we almost bought into that until the last day of our first. Everyone was looking forward to the upcoming summer break from school. The last day of our trip was filled with excitement and hijinks, so to speak. We hosted a pizza party with Miss Lucky's second graders and their first grade buddies, and it was a lot of fun. Normal second grader fair, playing games, singing songs, and telling stories with a boy named William bolted out of the classroom as Sabich exited a few minutes earlier, went visit the restroom. Everyone in class seemed worried about our classmate, Miss Anderson and Miss Lucky, recently put out some intense looks. Will sweetheart, what's wrong? Who came up to him first? William's cries were so intense that he collapsed a little bit onto the carpet the other day. Children found his vomiting and loudly calling for his license disgusting. Will would have been upset if Anderson hadn't patted him on the back and asked him to share the wealth. Steve, Steve, Steve. He broke down and cried. Miss Anderson's grasp on the kid was increased as she tried to keep his eyes closed. He screamed and curled into the fetal position as one of the grown-ups tried to drag him out into the hall. Mother offered Carla's parents a seat in the waiting area after they had. The mother in charge appeared puzzled by the remark, but she eventually consented. William waited a few more minutes before opening his eyes and answering Miss Anderson's question. Appeared to have been closed throughout his entire presence. Let Kay try, I saw Steve. And I saw Steve whimpering with his eyes closed trying in vain to divert our attention. Steve, Anderson's red and bloated question, is the child man Steve. Will sneezes and coughs blood key, and the room is silent as they realize Steve is dead. Miss Anderson chatted to us briefly before another adult led us out of the classroom. Until we were told to be quiet, 
until our parents got home from work at the end of the day, we'd all huddle together and whisper. Surprisingly, no one wanted to leave. Everyone was curious about what they would discover. I didn't find out about it until the second grade, and now I have a lot to say about it. Of that summer, besides spending most of my sleepless nights contemplating whether or not I would ask Tony about Steve and the terrible chair, Phil would ask Scotty if he had heard anything, and he would do the same if he had, but he hadn't. Tony, a classmate from the previous year, and I arranged to get together and start inquiring about William, a classmate from last year who is now in the third neither Scotty nor Phil, is anyone other than Eddie, the young man who initially warned me about the evil chair, gave us the information we needed, and William doesn't attend this school because he's probably being homeschooled. How come this debate lasted so long? And in the few time we had before class began, he mentioned that he had heard strange, squishy sounds as he was relieving himself. Steve was on the floor, writhing, when he opened the door, and there were growling sounds coming from inside. I mean, how could Steve not be Steve right now? Another item, the existence of which I neither know nor does anyone else. From what I gathered, Steve is still with us, and we'll be starting a new project soon. King was fooled because he has been getting medical attention and is now educating himself at home. Who was now our instructor, blew her whistle and told us to take our seats, assured us that pupils would never use the restroom alone, but would instead bring a friend. As a result of the events at recess involving the Stephen J. Boy misses, Shonda would make frequent appearances at the Dome, where my friends and I ate last year. When he started doing it all the time, we stopped coming there and started walking around the block instead. Around the playground, at a steady pace, Scotty stated that his elder brother, who was always there if we needed to talk one day, was now in the fifth grade, and Scotty asked him about his experience in detention for cheating on an exam. Caleb claimed he fell asleep or forgot what happened. I brought up the bat chair because I figured at some point he was going to start sobbing. He's not feeling good, Mrs. Shonda Sauce. Scotty didn't answer her question about why he was crying and proceeded, Mrs., Shonder has to feed him, and the nurse has offered to walk him back to the house. Scotty protested, but then started sobbing even more than when Reese gave Mrs. Sean our card. Led us back to our classroom, and then we observed her enter the teacher's lounge. I can still picture it. The kindergarten class was barely two rooms away. While the rest of us were napping, Miss Lucky was giving a math lesson. In the dark, I heard a woman scream. Basic fractions are something I heard when the lights went out left us with her assistant, Rachel, who advised us to be calm after around three minutes, and then left the room. There was no break in the wailing and sobbing for the entire time the lights were out before they were turned back on. As soon as daylight returned, the kindergartners stopped. Miss Leckie informed us they were scared of the dog, but that wasn't at all. During recess, a group of kindergartners confided in us that they had experienced a blackout. My buddies and I heard the screams from the classrooms during recess and proceeded to find out what could have caused the cat's fried state. Despite the fact that many first graders were absent, we did manage to identify a few wall told an almost identical tale, but I'll alter the details for clarity's sake. The accounts used to have a more consistent vocabulary and grammar, but now they sound like something a kindergartner might say. Rather, it's how I supplemented them. Everything is just as they described it. 
We reached out and asked the blonde girl, can we touch you? Miss Natasha, if you'll recall, prayed for us before nap time, and this was the day. Already a peculiarity at our institution, atheist parents have gone ballistic whenever religion has been brought up in the classroom. Students involved in extracurricular religious activities due to the influence of their teachers. She prayed to a deity whose name I did not get since it did not sound English and Steve was named. J-Boy and I both felt tingly and sleepier than usual afterward. It's hard to say how long we were out before the girl, the dog, or whatever it was came to wake us up. Started shaking and appeared ready to cry, but in an instant she relaxed and even smiled a little. It was stunning, she gushed. Stunning. She said I didn't have much to say, but I wanted to mention that before nap time, another kindergarten teacher named Natasha prayed for my classmates and me. I don't know how to describe it, but after she recounted Steve and Jay's childbirth, I felt a strange, difficult feeling. Some of my pals closed their eyes as the fatigue set in, but I fought to keep mine open. As much as I tried to hold it, I knew I had to go to the bathroom. The kid's face was particularly expressionless and blank when he finally seemed to notice I was awake. I was sitting by the swing set, doing nothing, when I heard Miss. When Natasha left, I knew it because I heard the click of her shoes on the floor, so I got my blanket and went to cover myself up. I snapped at the apparent union, but I still don't know what the joining mechanism was. Way. The last time it sensed my wakefulness, it decided I shouldn't stay awake. Aware of the fact that the boy's wages had recently begun to rise, you might not have caught every word. Despite it towered over me, it was not in a panic as the other job had been. I felt its heavy presence over me but I knew it wasn't actually touching me. I should have cried out of fear, but I held it together. Gone to sleep, and after talking to one of us, we realized we couldn't understand each other. I recall him from kindergarten. His name was Joshua, and he was a very tall boy. He removed the tennis balls that had been used to pad the legs of chairs and replaced them with... Several kids witnessed him staring at them and chatting with them a lot during playtime. While we were talking to him, his tennis ball pal's mouths moved in response to what he said. We were all set for bed when Miss Natasha led us in a prayer. Because of his concern about the hereafter, I felt a warm tingle close my eyes. Eyes to sleep, fell asleep, and then something arrived. To which Joshua's roommate, Tony, interrupted hit Tony in the face with a tennis ball. Yes, I did predict this. Mr. Natasha had left the lights on, but when we woke up, they were off. Where she was, and we yelled for no apparent reason. I didn't know why, but I was the only one shouting, and I yelled till it hurt. I had the sinking feeling that teachers were checking on us whether or not they said they were. None of us knew each other's names. Yet something that touched all of us knew my name. Say anything. And when Joshua finally did, it was so obvious that even he had to smile and admit it. After kindergartners finished their recess, nobody told their parents what had transpired. Tony, alone, or if they did inquire, they didn't mention it. As Josh and the rest had mentioned, Scotty and Phil understood that school would go on as usual, boring and predictable after all these years. Having learned this, I don't think anything was the norm. 
My mother reminded me of something from second grade that I had forgotten just three days before. My teacher claimed that I had been sent to detention for drawing offensive things on the whiteboard. There's just one explanation for what happened, and it's not one we drew a blank on. One, we were not sent to detention. Rather, we were moved elsewhere. We sat on the cursed chair, and whatever it was that made it effective worked. When I got back to Augusta, I realized that none of my memories from grades two through four were reliable. Instead of going to the university everyone in Georgia seems to go to, I ended myself in a different institution here, which I will not identify. The same building as in Warwood, but it had been repaired and repainted. I walked in and inquired at the front desk about the school's past, telling them that I was a student there back in the day. Warwood, oh yes, Warwood. A term given to it in the wake of the most of the original workforce has been replaced due to a change in management. Employees at DuPont and other large companies have left or moved. Fire broker babe in Fayetteville, D.C. Hmm, I... I stopped and looked inside, wondering whether there had been any renovations. I don't suppose the room serving as the faculty lounge has ever been anything other than a hall, so why not fill it with warm memories instead? I'm sorry, but unless you have prior authorization, I can't grant access to any of the rooms in this building. I see, and thanks for clearing it up for me. Do you happen to know if any of the former teachers from or would still work here? Did Natasha Tuber teach you and not me kindergarten? But I do recall her. Would you like to chat with her after school lets out in approximately an hour? I sat down on the sidewalk outside the business and looked at your... I received a call on my phone from the front desk informing me that a woman named Natasha had a guest who wanted to know her name. Alex, his name is, sir. She asked me that. She abruptly ended the call after a short talk with her former student. Natasha was overjoyed to see you again and remembered you fondly. Heartbeats were racing and I was feeling queasy, but I covered my symptoms as best I could and left the room. I went to the bathroom, which was right as I remembered it to be, and I recalled the tale of the late Steve. When I needed to use the restroom, I came here because I knew the teachers in the vicinity would soon follow. A young boy entered. Hello, he said. Hey, I'm good with, the boy added. Kids I know, that's what I was most worried about being categorized as, at the moment, a pervert who had inappropriate conversations with kids in the school bathroom where I was working. It's probably best not to say too much, but if the kid sees that you're social and nope, you're not the daddy of anyone there. If he needed to use the restroom so badly, why was this boy waiting outside the, you look like someone's father, as you stand in the stalls? outside the washroom as I wash my hands. I wave an awkward goodbye, and the boy just stands there, gazing. When I came out of the restroom, I looked to my left and noticed that the door to the lounge had been renovated to look much more upscale. Very tritely, teacher's lounge was written on the glass, and I peered in. Inside, I couldn't see anyone even when I squinted my eyes, so I formed a poor impression. I checked the doorknob and found that it was unlocked, so I walked inside to grab some coffee and a snack. This was the very identical table, basin, staff restroom, and chair door 
that had appeared in my, I double-checked behind me to make sure no teachers were entering the building at the same moment I arrived at Warped Wood. I reassured myself that I could easily dodge them and moved my focus back to the door. After all, it was now or never. I gingerly reached out and turned the doorknob and the door squeaked open. I pushed open the creaky old door and looked down the chilly, straight black stairwell that lay beyond. I stepped inside as the air rushed over my face and my head started to throb. A healthy young lady, I could see no hope as I descended further and more into the darkness. Ache in my bottom, but I persisted using the screen of my phone as a my neck was flexed so far that my spine could feel the weight of my thoughts. As I got to the foot of the stairs and saw a light switch on the right, which, as I checked with my phone, wasn't a good sign, I flipped it. Shelves upon shelves of crates, I have no idea what to anticipate. No sinister thrones, torches, crucifixes, or skeletons allowed. Child art. However, despite everything, both my head and back hurt. Natasha stood at the bottom of the stairs, beaming to greet Alex. I have no idea how I ended myself in a floral gown, but I'm on my way out. Alex, I said. Move that box, and I tried to open it, sounding aggressive in the process. I took a step forward, fists clenched, but she didn't flinch or give me the time of day. You turn around, grin even larger, and ask, What the, what the, what the, what the, what the hell did you do to me in here? She knew Natasha. I was scared she had bargaining power. Remarked, it's beautiful, so beautiful, echoing the kindergartner. And then she pointed to the basement and take a look at the boxes. There's something I've been meaning to do for a while. Tony Scott and Phil came back to silence me, and I resisted the want to hug them. When Natasha brushed by me, she did so, so softly that I felt like I may explode. She knelt down by a very huge box as I started to go up the steps, but something stopped me. Right side of the room, unlocked the door, and inserted her entire body inside. As soon as I saw it, she put her left arm inside, grunted, and lifted something out. I collapsed to my knees. I scarcely recalled that this girl, I stood motionless, immobilized in misery, having seen no human and no animal before. Natasha, I finally found a place to rest my body, and I wish I had to wait to kill myself. I don't remember what she said, but she put the skull on my head and inserted my, my thoughts conjured an image of all of my instructors, dressed in black with candles and wrist ties. The ones on the road, the way they walk hunched over, their faces warped beyond recognition. I can feel the earth shifting beneath me, and a cold wind is blowing to help me win in my mind. In the corner, I spotted Tony and Phil, and they were bowing and shrieking at each other. Scotty, their heads swam, they were puking, and they were solving problems. Return to the present and witness Natasha's demented, bald death. A boy wearing something on his face tore at Steve's body while I closed my eyes and prayed. Sounds of kindergartners. Natasha's prayers, and the choir's singing could be heard. After years of having trouble pronouncing the unpronounceable faculty there, I finally remembered it. Placed himself in the unworthy seat of my throne, the throne of our financial worship, unpronounceable, 
children's goals and visions entered me, but I didn't pay any attention to them. Steve J. Boy, you should be dead aware of how beautifully done his work was when he performed it. Fragments of things he left me all over the place for some time, but he's back now. There's nothing we can do to keep him away for good this time. There's nothing anyone can do about it. So everyone sits down and someone traded letters via an NR's exchange, Peter Bishop, as the night. Peter Bishop's narration lasts all night. About 10 months ago, I was rushing my daughter to the hospital late one night, hospital. I recall the morning clearly, including when I woke up, what I ate, and how I felt. Everything seemed routine until I heard my daughter exclaim, see your daddy, as she hurried out the door to catch the school bus. Typical. But were there any warnings I could have looked for before bringing her home? Could I have anticipated that chest pains were the cause of my absence from school that day at 12 o'clock? Might I have been right when I said that 11 hours later, she'd be in agonizing pain and yell out in fear? Possibly more ready for the mad dash to the emergency room that happened before her heart gave out, I recall that night. The streets were slippery from the torrential rain that was beating down on my automobile. Pictures of roads and signals rendered speeds exceeding 40 miles per hour hard to achieve. I can still recall the panic I felt as I watched the colors blend together on my windshield. Holding tight to the wheel, the driver swerved and honked at the hazy figures of pedestrians to get out of the way. I recall her on road just before they got up close and personal with the front of my automobile. Milky eyes as she clutched her chest in pain. The oppressive air heavy with despair her still chest, by the time I reached the parking lot, where she had passed out, carried her through the door's automated sensors. The subsequent 40, after waiting for what seemed like minutes, the emergency department was unexpectedly deserted for a Friday night. I didn't think the check-in clerk cared very much about my presence, given the expression on her face. Looking back on that apathy, I was drenched, tapping my foot in my jammies, Seems mildly annoying now, but at the time I wasn't bothered by it at all. I sat in the hard chair of the waiting area and tried not to be too talkative. What were those physicians doing to my daughter in that vile hospital room? I thought about her and worried. Thoughts of the last time I'd seen something like this jumped back and forth in my head. My wife experienced a similar episode eight years ago, characterized by chest pain and weak breathing. I'll never forget the panicked expression on your face as you winced and moaned in pain. Someone who had reached the end of her life due to a confluence of she died of heart and lung failure, although the official cause of death was listed as other. Although I initially thought it would be possible to save her, by the time the ambulance arrived, it was too late. Didn't make me choose to drive erratically through downtown traffic to the emergency room instead of calling an ambulance. The travel was difficult even after I called 911 and waited for my daughter to die. Because I was prepared for the worst when I heard the news, I probably made things worse. She's unconscious, so it's neither good nor bad, but what happened came down somewhere in the center. As the doctor began to reassure me that she was, at least, Breathing normally, I cut him off and thanked him for the good news. Before I realized his gloomy demeanor and stopped talking, that's what I assumed he was saying. 
dead, but continued to state that she was in poor health when physicians declared she was. My daughter's symptoms had us baffled, yet in a few of days, we discovered that she was actually coping with. They told me that my heart and lung diseases were probably genetic, could not deny her heart was working hard to pump blood. The doctors warned me that if I didn't do anything, she might have trouble breathing since her lungs were too cold. This was not a problem that could be ignored, and the repercussions would be severe if they were treated with medication. She needs a heart and kidney donor if she is to survive and recover. They stated she was missing at least one lung, so we inquired about placing her on a donor list. Straightforward, but there was one thing I had to do every week to make sure she was well till her number came up. Missed at first because doctors presumably wanted to keep our expectations up about a stress would make everything more difficult with her blood, I had to be the one to ask. I was never given any information on the likelihood of obtaining a compatible donor. I'll never know if the physicians were honest about her prognosis or if they were aware of how uncommon her blood was. I was curious about the ignorance is bliss adage and the possibility that with enough patience we might succeed. If only the organs could have been delivered like a package in the mail, the weight would have been more tolerable. I probably would have asked why, or why not, because I would have blamed time till the letters indicated about three weeks later when I asked, I'll never forget the terrifying night in the hospital before my kid was released to return to school. I didn't go into work that day, but stayed home and waited anxiously by the phone in case something crucial happened. Reasoned that if I needed to pick her up, it wouldn't be on the opposite side of town. Was two hours after the mailman was supposed to have delivered and one hour before she was expected home. I must have been napping because I woke up to a horrible odor when he came and left. For a few seconds, I wasn't sure if I was hallucinating or if my nose actually... First, I smelt the acrid mixture of burning fish and damp smoke. Then I heard the strange sound like something is sliding through my mail slot. But neither the mailman nor anyone else has ever used it, despite my curiosity, yet hesitation to double-check. I laid there for five minutes before making a decision as to who might have delivered the letter. I went to my front door, looked down at the mat, and picked up the envelope containing my mail. I looked at the blank thing and realized there wasn't even a sender or return address. I walked to the window to make a show of myself and discovered it wasn't even addressed. Nobody was outdoors, and there were no non-American vehicles in my garage or parked everywhere on the sidewalk, too. So I shrugged and got back on my bike, this time with an envelope in hand. Couch and stared at him for a second. I'm almost sure my fingers began to tingle as I clutched it. Sensation, as though little bug legs were wriggling out of the package and away from my grip, I'm not sure I can put myself past the feeling of his anxiousness before receiving the letter. I'm positive that the tingling feeling I had before the seal was broken should still be present. I opened the envelope to retrieve the letter and noticed that its feel was strangely wet. You have a girl who needs a heart and lungs or she will die, the letter warned. Her blood is rare, so if you die and look for it, you won't discover anything. Time is running out to save her. In exchange for a child of a similar age, you can, if you want them to live to be 67, that's how long her life is. Lines. 
I could hear a faint clicking sound, like someone was sliding a fingernail softly around the back of my skull. Since the message was cryptic and sporadically delivered, the first things on everyone's mind were, is this a she seldom told anyone about my daughter's condition, and when she did, it was with a threat and a joke. There was never any closeness between my daughter and I and the people on this list. Without the proper timing or drive to carry this off, my initial thought was to visit the after my own internal investigation turned up nothing. I contacted the police and gave them the letter. Unfortunately, my own investigation, like the police's, came up empty. Proof that nobody else's fingerprints or a return address can be found on it. Without any kind of action, there wasn't much need to conduct an investigation. Despite the severity of the situation, the police did not do anything to help me and instead urged me to stay still. Be wary, lock up my residence, and forget about the letter, that's what they advised, before telling me to get back to work. The occasional crazed person will do this, but it didn't stop me. When I consider the letter's message concerning the blood, I realize it wasn't the I was getting a new message about once every two weeks for the next three months. Some were short poems describing how the author felt when others had more detailed descriptions of her choking on her own blood, and I would stand at her grave wondering what I could have done. As her broken heart pumped blood into her crushed lungs, one of the tubes contained a different number than the others. The toughest part was not knowing what they meant until much later when it became obvious. The clicking had to be a part of it because it got louder with each letter and word. Increased in volume and regularity whenever I failed to pay attention to even one of the clicks until I finally did so while residing with them. I had horrible migraines that no medication or earplugs could alleviate, and I could hear clicking whenever anyone spoke. One listening to the radio while trying to eat dinner with my daughter. Even in my sleep, that click acted as a reminder to screen at her until she shuts her damn mouth and storms out of the kitchen. Metronome and looping music, as my subconscious played out the I tried breaking them up so only I could hear them, but no one else could. Attributed it to the emotional strain of receiving letters telling me my daughter's survival odds remained in the single digits. Despite that justification, I still had a mental breakdown coming. Shortly before the conclusion of the school year, I came home to find my daughter reading the messages that had arrived. I grabbed one of the letters and scolded her for opening mail that wasn't hers, even though I was the one who had sent it. Avoided communicating my anxiety to her by saying she shouldn't read the mails that graphically detailed my death or hers. Despite the revulsion I felt at reading them, she simply looked at me perplexedly before speaking, saying something along the lines, relax, the lines of the dead are simply scribbles. It wasn't until then that I gave the letter a proper read, without skimming, internalized Monel minus the clicks, and instead relying on a visual scan of the page's markings. When I looked again, all I saw were smudged lines and curves, I decided to keep all of the correspondence I had previously discarded because I wanted to use it as supporting evidence in a legal case. Show the cops again down the road to emphasize how persistent this issue was being aware that this most recent letter, like all the others before it, was initially an unorganized mess. 
I decided to go back over the month's worth of unsettling letters I'd been receiving, and sure enough, I found out something disturbing. From the second letter on, the legibility of the letters seemed to deteriorate until they reached the, despite the letter's illegibility and the fact that I were given it today, I comprehended every word. I listened to the clicks and wondered if they were deciphering the illegible chicken scratch that had locked me out of the room. Spend the next seven days mulling over that. In the past, I took roughly two weeks off of work and sat idly by the, I couldn't predict when the next letter would arrive, but I did know that I would have to be there to receive it. I became obsessed with finding out the translation because I needed answers. The days passed in a haze as I stared at the door, waiting for someone other than my daughter to step up to it. Capturing this evasive mailman, tying them down, and repeatedly punching their snot-nosed face, yelling why and how, until I had an answer I was satisfied with. Fantasies of violence. I yelled at the mailman for three days straight until he stopped coming. Even though he never showed up at my door, I knew it was him. He was powerless to prevent this, and he didn't have any reason to take the blame when it fell on the clerk's shoulders. As the day progressed, I once again caught the distinct whiff of fishy wet smoke. I was caught off guard, but I didn't have time for a second mental check, so I bolted out the door before they could stop me. Opportunity to consider sneaking in another letter, I was positive I had. I swung open the door to my vacant porch, grinned, and sighed. I leaned against the doorframe, clutching my stomach, and laughed until I was hoarse. Fell over, which means I must have been insane. This explains a lot. Those clicks echoing in my ears were the source of the fishy fog I thought I smelled. I knew I'd lost it when my brain broke and I called out to two non-existent friends. Men in white coats demanding that I be immediately restrained in a straitjacket on the grounds that I was clinically insane. When I closed the garage door, that's exactly what I thought. I opened paper, ricocheted off my calf, and I heard the slot in the door. Did not believe that I was attempting to persuade myself that I was insane due to the odor. Disappeared, and I didn't get the shivers, so I picked up the letter and returned it. To the sofa, I didn't bother opening the door or glancing out the window because I didn't recognize anyone there. I figured out what the letter was about by reading it, or rather by listening to the clicks whisper over the page. He said, Your girl will talk with death today at work. Into my ear. My kid was taken to the hospital at 2.30 and the school called me to let me know that she would die a horrific death if she didn't get her organs soon. And I even heard euthanasia mentioned. After I checked out of the hospital around 5.45, the front desk suggested I stop by the rental office. Spot before they closed, so I went down there about 8 or 9 in the evening. When you've had a few at the local bar and are feeling a bit tipsy and numb, it's hard to keep track of time. Tend to blend together, but in my slurred, inebriated state, I managed to parse out the meaning of those. I noticed the numbers on the lettuce's base, and it hit me that they represented the days till my daughter's death. The quigs were reassuring when I got home late, just as the letters had said they would be. Helped me to asleep without any disturbing dreams or images on that particular night. Was clicked to me in pitch black unawareness, 
repeating the contents of the first letters in a smooth rhythm, and I had my directives. The following morning, I awakened, and I... The quicks assured me that my daughter's day would go smoothly, and I'd soon be fine because I had a plan. And after a quick rinse and dry, everything would... Once I finished eating breakfast, I drove to where I had rented a van for my next. For the first time in a while, during the few hours I traveled, the clicks were silent in respect of my hunt. My target was a youngster of the same age as my daughter, and I spotted him in a quiet, unfamiliar area. I didn't know her, but she had a lot of frizz in her hair, walked funny, wore bifocals, and carried I couldn't care less about the kid's whereabouts or activities while he was gone. I don't have any religion, but in that instant, I knew this youngster was sent from above. I pulled up next to him and said, hey there, since I had to get him for my kid, before I could finish saying, heavy bag you've got there, need alert. In my most cordial tone, the one ran off. In retrospect, I can't say that I had any right to be angry with him. I was shaking as the clip shouted at him for running like that. He was tormenting me. My muscles responded before my head did, like a drumline chanting, get him, get him, get him. Van launched. Earthquakes approved of my split-second decision to. The thump was what initially alerted me that there was no screen. It was like waking up from a dream. My sanity had returned, and the clicks had quieted to the point that they were unnoticeable. I felt my heart stop as I looked out the window of the van and saw something laying in the street in front of the vehicle. Take a closer look. The boy was lying on his back with his arms and legs twisted and bent in unbelievable ways. Asphalt and the contents of his backpack were thrown throughout the area. I couldn't determine where the blood was coming from, but someone had knocked out the glass in his left sneaker. I covered my lips as his head mouth, and limbs all twisted in unnatural positions. I slammed my hand on my forehead and wondered whether he could hear me. Maybe he's still alive, and he was. He was still making noises that told me he was still alive. I didn't care about anything else now that I saw a living child. I was alone, so despite his warm body, I swept him up into my arms. His bodily fluids streaming down my arms, I threw him inside the van and sped off. It didn't take long for me to realize that the clicks had not provided any sort of direction. After 10 minutes of washing the van's hood for the police, I should bring the injured criminal who has been sitting in the back to them. After getting kids' blood on my shirt and driving around in circles for 30 minutes, I mustered the courage to return home. To follow without further instruction, and sure enough, there he was, leaning up against my door when I got home. I took the envelope back to the car and opened it, but instead of writing on the blank page, I saw scribbles. Were more like to a Rorschach ink blot, making me feel as though the sender was poking fun at my sanity. Even though the address was short, I still pulled out my phone to type it in, the global positioning system. I cannot comment on what occurred after the the following few hours were spent in a blur of driving, and I have no recollection of where I went or what I did. My final destination is the only thing I can recollect, followed by passenger seat ink cartridges, lengthy stretch of road with no signage or hydro poles in sight. My phone was dead, and when I turned around to look at the kid I had been talking to, he was gone.
I had apparently stopped his bleeding at some time after he was stolen. His silence suggested he was either still unconscious or had been knocked out. Again, I have no idea why, but after staring at him and then at the road, I took off. Guilt for what I was about to do to him and where I was bringing him, not just for having accidentally run over a child. I knew I would run upon tales about pedophiles living alone in the woods at some point, The thought of those who lock their kids in basements for years to torture, rape, and kill them flooded my head. How could I have possibly loved my baby any more than I already did? Worth the lifetime suffering of this one random kid. And what would she say if she knew where it would end in less than two weeks? The logical side of my brain had just won, and I had to do a U-turn. Ignore the letters, ignore the clicks, and get this kid to a doctor. Forget the stench. Forget the dire warnings that my kid, like my wife before her, would soon pass away. Had I realized it an hour sooner, I may have been on the road at an impossible speed. In front of me, expanded in a matter of seconds until it resembled an indefinite, unlabeled parking lot rather than a road. The road seemed to go on forever, and it was so smooth that I initially thought it had been paved only that day. Fear had overtaken reason as I drove away from the endless asphalt plain that had been behind me. As the vehicle slowed to a stop, I turned the key to see if it would turn over. Nothing happened as I turned the key, not even the sound of a coffin engine attempting to start up, and my chest constricted in anticipation. Was in the midst of a bizarre, no, we're in a dead van with a dead guy phone, and a child who was close to death when a thin layer of fog descended upon the tarmac runway and I I coughed, opened my windows, and the stale smoke smell returned. I opened the van door and stumbled out, but when I laid on the ground, I realized the air wasn't much better than inside the van. I had been coughing for a while before my lungs seemed to adjust, and when I eventually stopped, I felt a glimmer of hope. I felt something warm on my face as I ascended into the fog and saw a figure in front of me holding a lantern. I heard the phrase, I couldn't make out any details of its features, which sounds of clicking coming from that direction, my translation showing the lantern vanishing into the mist. I scrambled frantically and then sprinted for it. But after losing speed, despite my fatigue, I realized multiple times that the light would not stop shining if I kept making progress toward it. The faint scent of a new wind assaulted me every few seconds. Happened before, but never in such a short amount of time. And I was positive this time that I was... I was walking in the direction of the odor when I noticed the ground was getting more and more rough and empty. It kept on doing so the further I got, and suddenly there were the garments I'd been wearing. One of the first things I saw was a rotting sneaker that seemed like it had been there for years. There was no one else around, and as I walked on, more and more pairs of abandoned shoes began to appear. Whenever a breeze blew by, shirts, pants, and other articles of clothes would flutter to the ground, would recede marginally, and once I did, I discovered the source of the clothing. I figured it was a girl and yelled out to her, but she didn't answer. Noticed that her leggings were falling off and that she was wearing a pickaxe, which she was swinging robotically into the pavement, were riddled with bullet wounds, and she was missing a sneaker when I found her. 
I walked up to her and she pretended I wasn't there, staring into the dirt with bloodshot eyes. The scariest part was the faint black streaks drawn down the sides of her cheeks as if she had been sobbing ash. I doubt she was any older than 14 or 15 at the time I touched her. They flinched in pain because her skin was blazing hot, but feverishly so, because I knew something was wrong with her, but there was nothing I could do about it. The more I traveled, the more piles of abandoned clothing and children I came upon. Some were merely tossing their equipment into the asphalt. Others had lost many items of clothes. While some were covering up the holes they dug, I had a glimpse of two nude children in one of the larger ones being filled. Moreover, it was a medical wonder that some of them were able to stand at all. Were alive or not, the more I followed the lamp, the more youngsters I saw who were lacking important items. One kid I saw had portions missing from his body that weren't just clothing. I saw chunks of meat slide out of his legs and stomach like ice cream cones, and the whites of his ribs were visible. It appeared as though the girl's heart had been surgically removed and the boy's eyes had been gouged out. Despite being removed, he continued working. And the entire skilled globe then, I... I saw one youngster who wasn't working, but who was instead running away from the scene of sheer terror he was in. I watched it go out into the horizon, across the blacktop, morbidly curious to see what would happen, but also knowing deep down, as far as I was concerned, he wouldn't make it out of the fog alive. There were at least five or six white-bearded preachers who descended upon him, and he didn't stand a chance. People of beauty but with trees that had satin-like bodies, I could tell this youngster wasn't English since he was pleading in what seemed like a foreign language. Watch the figures chuckle, eyes closed, as they listened to his treasure. They prepared to speak. Instead of speaking, they made clicking noises from their throats that I couldn't decipher, and then bowed their heads. I imagined them walking with their long bodies toward the center of the circle they made and placing their heads atop their victim went downhill, accompanied by screaming and a bobbing of heads inside the circle. I was willing to sacrifice my daughter for the sake of the child whose life I didn't knowing full well that I would doom him to a life of grinding labor until his very existence became meaningless. Left of him, I was perplexed as to why I didn't make a break for it. I can't help but wonder what caused that, something I saw, something I remembered, I don't know if the vehicle wouldn't start because some part of me still yearned for that terrible conversation or what. After a while, I realized that the fog was thickening to the point where I could no longer see the sky. I knew the sun was setting because there came a time when I stopped hearing its roar. There were youngsters working in the area, and it was completely dark, save for the light of the lantern. When I heard moaning coming from both directions, it made me feel as though I were being suffocated. In some sort of grotto where I could still feel the asphalt beneath my feet, I heard nauseating squishes with every step. As I got closer to the lantern, I became more and more frightened. The cave's walls, which had previously appeared to be formed of rock, revealed themselves to be organic in the new light. Skinned bodies lacked any underlying muscle, bone, or organs. Of these people, and yet I thought I could make out the agonized twitching of their lips as they fought against them in the damp prison where moaning 
could be heard throughout the room. The wind was so fierce that I began to wonder if I were in a cave. I was only five feet away from the dead when the lantern thing stopped working. Walls. The figure prompted me to glance downward, and when I did, I saw a cooler sitting within a neatly wrapped dry ice. One healthy heart and two healthy lungs were just as good as new. For a moment, they pondered in silence. To whom do we belong? Groups assured me that they would be fine for my daughter, and then gave me specific presentation guidelines to follow. I was afraid to speak up for fear of what would happen, so maybe that's why I stayed quiet. Maybe it was out of politeness, maybe it was because the act was already done, but I nodded in agreement. When the lantern went out, I couldn't understand why, but I heard a click and saw someone else's face. After realizing I'd been sleeping for a while, I opened my eyes to find myself back in my living lights were out, and it was pitch black outside when I reached down and felt the cooler on my lap. I put the cooler aside and walked upstairs to collect the mail, but the clicks never returned. I made a fire in the fire pit in the backyard and spent the night with them this time. When I was finally finished, I tossed each letter and envelope into the fireplace. Likewise, there was nothing to suggest that I had actually visited that location at me for the kid's disappearance, but I had already left my phone and the addresses in the van. It's a mystery how the van itself was left in such pristine shape when it was returned to the rental lot. My daughter was having surgery, so I quietly donated all the belongings I had inherited from a relative who had passed away. I had no proof of my claims, so I had to work with what I was given. Surgery went well, time passed, and my daughter returned to school. I was able to get back to work after finishing school, but I still dreamed about being there. Knowing that no one would ever find the body of the youngster whose death I was allegedly responsible for was excruciating. Karma is a client and always bites back whoever said that was correct because what goes around comes around. Yesterday, when I got home from work, my daughter was gone and my doormat had been stolen. I picked up an envelope that didn't sting and was surprised to discover email. Sorry I had to, but I think you'll understand. That night, my daughter didn't return home. I've been sitting here recording my thoughts ever since I began. When I first started thinking about writing down my tale, I wasn't sure if it would be a confession or an account. My daughter's safety prevents me from writing a suicide note, and no one would believe me if I did. If Lee could live forever, then who am I to take the easy way out when she is in danger? I don't even know why I felt driven to put this down, much less for whom I was suffering so greatly. I'm no closer to finding out, but the scent has returned, and the clicks are speaking softly in my ear. I was promised assistance, and now they say they have her and that I can save her. Return her in as good of shape, if not better, but only after I increase my production. Exchanges Elias Witherow's Crown the Clown, sung by Kaylon Scott Carter. Kaylin Scott Carter, Why in Crown the Clown by Allies, Width, and Room. I grew up a privileged brat because my parents could afford to lavishly indulge me. I was the lone kid of loving parents who spoiled me rotten. The toy selection in the playroom was mind-boggling, with arcade games, a giant screen TV, and more. 
I can honestly say that despite having so much, I had a great time. After giving my childhood a close look, I'm eager to impart the tremendous wisdom I've gained. I shared my secret stockpile of toys and pizza with my pals, and we had a blast. On paper, I should have been a really giving person. I liked movies and privileged brat, but I didn't inherit the best genetics. Birthday. I invited all my pals over, and my dad hired a giant moon bounce for us and decked out our yard in costumed superhero accoutrements. When I was going through a hard patch, tables with punch and nibbles and small finger appetizers were prepared for the major part. Balloons and ribbons were strung to every tree to keep us from moaning until dinner. On the surface, music blasted from enormous speakers was my parents' way of reassuring me of their undying affection. On the patio my father had prepared, my pals and I played games of chance and went amok. My grandparents joined me and my siblings while we were waiting our turn on the moon bounce. Entering the party with a party gift, my grandmother said she had gotten for me, I bought this enormous plastic clown's head at a garage sale, and holy smokes, is it hollow? It resembled one of those strange, inexpensive toys popular in the 1990s. White-faced celebrity for a week before being completely shelved. Its lips were painted with a smile, and it had red rings drawn around its eyes. Plastic Bulbasaur with a funny, painted-on grin and crimson eyes that landed strangely on its face as I flipped this mysterious object over. Like a gigantic gumball, I was holding a plastic gold crown, that my grandfather stated was a gift when he passed away. When I asked my grandma what she was doing, she chuckled and described the game to me. When my buddies tried to sneak up on me while I was wearing the clown head and crown me, I flipped the head over. When I looked up and saw the bald dome with the notches of a crown on it, I was boring. But I didn't want to be impolite, so I slid the plastic clown in. It landed on my head, pressing the inside against my temples. Red light through the plastic blocked my view entirely, and I realized there was nothing there. My grandfather laughed as he saw me go through airport security because there were so few Iowas. The lack of eye openings caused me to fumble around with my hands outstretched to avoid colliding with anything. I had to rely on my ears to keep my buddies at bay, and he stated the game was too simple for me to win, was labeled Crown the Clown, I was getting the hang of things and pinned the tail on the donkey, except with a clown and a crown, and I lost and said my, after a few minutes of my friends watching and laughing at me, my grandmother flung one of they were given the crown, and the game began. It was unexpectedly enjoyable after the plastic mass heated up. However, I wasn't concerned. I had other things on my mind, like keeping my pals away and the crown off my head. I was giggling when 20 minutes passed and no one had caught me. I was bumbling around, trying not to run into anything, when my friend John called out to me. If he was trying to steal the spotlight or just divert my attention, he succeeded. Suddenly, I heard a loud bang over my head and felt something click. I went to my friend's cheers and my eventual defeat with a smile on my face. I tried to remove the large plastic head from my shoulders, but the hole at the base of my neck immediately shrank, curling tightly beneath my... I tucked my chin and bit down on my skin, trying not to freak out. The air within the thickening head made me grip the base of the head and pull up as hard as I could. Suddenly, I felt jagged edges cutting into me, and I halted, my friends laughing behind me. 
I'm sure I looked stupid, but I didn't see the humor in that situation at the time. My breath blew back at me from the tight shirt, and I squinted against the burning as sweat dropped into my eyes, crimson light seeping in through the eye paint walls, making me feel woozy and bewildered. I was conscious of how confining the situation was for Clownhead, and I yelled for help. One of my pals rushed to my aid as I was trying to hide my panicked laughter from showing on my face. Pain erupted around my face and I shouted as I felt his hands clamp down on my ears and jerk upward. I pushed him away, breathless, wondering why I couldn't remove the garment that had gone on so smoothly. Snug over my head with barely enough room, but now the aperture was flush against me. I felt a sharp ache in my nose as I realized it was pressed hard against the plastic across my throat. I yelled for help as my realization hit me. The clown's head was shriveling. I needed someone to call my dad since I was sweating profusely, my head was smelling, and I had not had a shower in days. Although my throat was dry, my lips were lined with perspiration, and my fingers were on fire. The feeling of suffocation tightened its grip on my head and shoulders. Head obscuring my view, I start screaming for my dad. I could feel him standing before me, his fingertips tracing the exterior of my cell, while his voice went from amused to menacing. I tried tugging at the head again, but it only made things worse. When I was a little girl, my dad could hear the horror in my voice as I screamed into the plastic dome and explained that it was growing tighter and tighter. I could feel his fingertips tracing the root of my pain as he vainly tried to he attempted to insert his fingers between the base's lip and my flesh via the newly constricted gap at the bottom, but failed. The clown's tightening grasp on my head resulted in him choking and gagging me as his knuckles dug into my throat. Moreover, the heat and lack of air have caused me to wheeze and collapse to my knees. When my friends and I were getting ready to head to the pool, my father yelled at us, telling us to go get something from the woodshed. I tried not to pay attention to the pain in my head by focusing on my breathing instead, but I could not. My mother's worried voice sounded like a harsh inquiry as plastic pressed against my skull like a grate waiting to pop. Father disregarded as his fingers attempted to pry the head off my throat once more my pals to hurry up because he could sense I was losing consciousness, and his fingers were back at my throat as he yelled. I knelt in front of him while digging desperately for relief. Suddenly, as I watched, my father swayed and sucked in hot, stale air in an attempt to drive strained into the hot plastic, and I felt my stomach turn as my gag reflex kicked in. My stomach lurched, and I knew another wave was on its way. I fought it, but I couldn't. I threw up in the mask, regurgitating soda and food like I was attempting to stop a train. I let out a gasp when the fragrance of baking pretzels filled the stifling room. When another cow shot out of my mouth, the scorching bile splashed all over my face and into my ears, against my flesh, splashing, but unable to escape the confines of my skull, and I was neck deep in the slimy yellow liquid until it reached my nostrils. My father overheard me making a gurgling sound in my brain, and he slapped me across the face. Filthy hair and all. She laid me on my back with vomit gushing over my ears, creating a pocket in which I could breathe my gas. I could feel the plastic contracting once more, this time a wet, harsh squeeze that gradually obscured my vision.
The iron hold on my skull was tightening, and I felt myself beginning to depart my body. I didn't know how much longer I'd be able to withstand its hold until my friend came back with something my dad had asked for. His speech was muddled by my own vomiting, but I could make out his instructions as he flipped me over on my side. I felt like my nose was going to crack from coughing up vomit. My ears throbbed and my skin glistened with sweat as I fought against the bars of my cell. When I felt something cold and hard glide down my father's neck and under my head's chin, I knew exactly what it was. I bit my lip, tears streaming down my face as my father hit me over the head with a crowbar. I screamed his name as his voice shook with desperation and he apologized. Comfort when I felt the crowbar delve into my neck muscles and release the tension. Some of the vomit was able to dribble out of the bulk after the clown suddenly lifted his head. I thrashed around on the ground, screaming in pain, clawing at my head as it tightened again, this time compressing my skull harder than it had before. I thought my pressure and the shadows were swimming right up to my... I heard my father and struck my... My companions had to hold me down as his perspiring hands readjusted the crowbar on top of my head. I felt my father's icy tongue hanging over me as I was shoved to the side. Dad kept apologizing as he licked the crowbar down the side of my neck. I could feel my muscles tensing in protest as my father walked me to the car. He slammed the crowbar into my mouth, drawing blood, and jammed it under my lip. I sucked it in till the cold metal of the blade brushed against my cheek. Then I tightened up. My father immediately whispered in my ear to brace myself as blood poured down my neck and across my shoulders. The intense pressure slashed into my face and I thrashed wildly in response. Searing pain flashed over my cheek and forehead. I clutched and tore out handfuls of grass. The edge of the crowbar sliced into my jaw like a bolt of lightning as my father used it as a last resort. I was in tears as I made a last ditch, I hope successful. When I tried to read in the dark, I felt my world shake and my stomach churn. When I tried to get away from the agony, my buddies held me down and I heard one of them sob. My father's teeth clattered together as he kept pulling up with a, there was a painful boom, and I was whisked away to a, my tongue wiggled and went numb from a new, excruciating level of pain. I felt a molar break away in my mouth. It rolled across my tongue. Like a sucker for blood candy, I felt an onslaught of shrieking blackness as it sucked me in, and I felt the rush of chilly air as the clown's jokes finally fell flat. I passed out and felt my father's shivering hands on me as I shattered. I fell asleep in his arms and woke up in the hospital a few days later. After what felt like hours, my face was twisted and wrapped around the plastic that held my jaw in place. I was dizzy and ill. My mom and dad were at my side, watching the IV bag pump medicine into my veins. My grandparents sat on the other side of the room, and I looked at them with bloodshot, worried eyes. I woke up to find my grandma sobbing in the bed, and as soon as they saw I was awake, they started apologizing. Simultaneously, my father for his actions, and my grandparents for their role in exposing me to them. I close my eyes in fear as their voices blend into one another. I fell asleep, as usual, thanks to the medications coursing through my veins. I still remember the how the terrible clown head felt on my, felt the way it weighed, observed the way the light seeped through the plastic. It's like one terrible joke 
and it's sitting across my skull. Now that I've had time to heal from the ordeal, I can't help but yet find it hilariously revolting to observe that my jaw has never fully healed. Where the crowbar made an incision in my cheek, I can see the twisted scar tissue. The jaw is permanently twisted, as if in a painful half-smile. Some may claim I appear really unattractive due to the scar tissue that is now extending from my lips. In a clownish fashion. The Jeff Harton Steve Taylor composition, Leave Your Flashlights at Home. Jeff Harden and Steve Taylor's Leave Your Flashlights at Home. Since I've been a park ranger for nearly two decades, regulations have I write this to try to warn people about the changes that have occurred since then. Let me tell you about the last park I worked at before you go camping or hiking or whatever it is you do in the great outdoors. Regarding the area for work purposes alone, we had camping clusters so that we switched out every year so as to not overwork anyone's set and give Mother Nature a chance to recover. Our main summer season was still a few months away, but the winter had just been announced. I've been delegated the task of determining which campsites require further inspection. Time to mend, and among the ones we can crack open, winners are few and far between in this frigid climate. Except for hardy sadists and Boy Scout troops commanded by people who think they are better than everyone else, very few people went camping in the cold. Our hardy sadists, I wasn't expecting to encounter anything out of the norm at the first place when we arrived. On my approach to the next destination, I noticed what might be some trash and rubbish down in River Valley. Scumbags established an illegal camp and, as is typical, left behind trash and smoking remains. I'm getting closer to the scene and can already make out the unmistakable ruins of... Clearly, this was a huge celebration since there was trash and human bones everywhere. Still, the tents were raised and I paused both blood and time. I see blood puddles on the ground adjacent to telltale indicators of a major catastrophe. I take my radio off my belt as I'm being pulled into the bushes. I am a qualified law enforcement officer, so I removed my Glock 22 from its holster and fired a single bullet. However, it has been quite some time since I had to fire my rifle, so I swiftly scan the area for any, I wait for the crowd to disperse, turn on the radio, and ask for reinforcements. When they sense danger, animals in the wild become eerily silent. Predator. I pray all the birds are quiet because of me and my newly sharpened blade. Gazing around slowly for something, anything, a shredded plastic cooler, a tent that has destroyed, more blood splattered over the walls and within, and more people had died. I mean, come on, you can't just lose that much blood and keep on walking. Yet no one believes me. I've seen bears dig through trash bags that were torn open and contained a small amount of viscera, but never any humans. Camps and destroy anything that could be eaten. Wild hogs that root through the underbrush to find food and possibly more. Then the bears, yet this is neither of those things. The destruction is simply too great to be either. A divine wrath passed through and tore everything to shreds. Eventually, reinforcements arrive, and I'm ordered to go to headquarters. Here, I have no idea why no one has come to the aid of one of the freshmen. Throws up at the scene, I'm relieved to get back to HQ in my uniform buzz with only four employees, 
The boss can sense the electricity in the air as calls ring and printers churn out documents. Sees me and calls me into his office, where he is looking very pale and haggard with bloodshot eyes. I, I've never seen him lock the door after sitting down near his desk. Close the door behind you before he hears me out as I describe what I observed. Afterward, he becomes paler and his hands tremor slightly. There is a very lengthy gap. And I, I leave and hear the door latch behind me, whereupon I anticipate further questioning from him. After waiting a while, I overhear him have a long, quiet chat on the phone with someone. Happens. I never ran across him again. News came down from on top that we were, a new manager has been given the task of handling crises. I'm not going to argue. So let's have a controlled fire of the illegal camp and the area around it. I see smoke out in the distance, and I hope this is the end of it. Before moving in, we'll claim a handful of the existing campsites near base camp. We installed a few trail cameras at the new spots to make sure they weren't smack in the heart of a nesting area. Pointing out the hog trails in the underbrush as a precaution, a few days later, we walk out to collect the manager. Watches the tape for a number of days in his office after it is shot. Hours into reviewing, he has a nervous breakdown, starts shouting, and goes on the... He then spends the rest of the day and night in the office calling people and spewing additional obscenities over the phone. Specialists and meeting organizers the following morning as my management doesn't despite his exhausted appearance, he outlines our new ideas which campsites near the ranger station should have floodlights and big lampposts should illuminate the park's perimeter. I told him that moving much further away from the light would defeat the purpose of the experiment. What's the, what's the... What's the, what's the point of going camping if you're only going to take a short walk through the grass and set up right next to the water lot? He tells me to be quiet, saying that this is only the beginning and that the park would soon be closing. It is now mandatory for all of us to carry a long rifle at all times after sundown. Nowadays, rangers frequently equip themselves with AR-15S and Remington 870S. There are dangerous and unpredictable animals out there. Bring a shotgun with you. The actual danger comes from commercial cannabis cultivators. No, it's not your stone next door neighbor. Ranges from large scale providers who value their anonymity to small scale growers who tuck a few plants behind the tomatoes. Hate law enforcement officers to anti-government radicals who believe we have no power over them share a few characteristics. They are usually well-armed, they despise law enforcement, and they won't think twice about insulting a slob or ranger who happens to wander onto their crops. Remember me, Mr. Elliot Ness. I fought Al Capone and won, but was too terrified to bust up a casino. Appalachian moonshiners, who shot to kill him repeatedly from the foothills, are known as I pulled the long straw and got the reasons why we do not use the large guns for routine patrols. The last straw, I got word that fresh policy updates would be waiting for me when I got back from my overnight shift. Overnights used to be simple. Just listen to the radios and break up any parties that got out of hand. I punch the clock and, as directed, head out to check for poachers and fire in the area. I've relocated my belongings from the gun safe. Our shotguns have been updated with rifled barrels to accommodate the solid slugs we've been given. You want to stop a charging bear? Our 15s are your best bet. 
though we hope you never have to use them. Upgraded from 15-round magazines to 30-round ones and secretly crept into the hollow-point market shooting in the woods with point rounds is a waste of time and money. Metal-jacketed ammunition has hollow points that won't detonate when they hit a twig. Harm. This is silly. We are not in a combat zone. There is no need to go to such extremes. Need this firepower next to the radio because we're not getting the same orders anymore. If we're given the chance to respond to actual emergency calls, we can help figure out exactly what's wrong. The problem is that after we report to this new number, I have no idea where the time has gone tonight. A few sleepless nights go by before they are finally allowed to leave the building before sunrise. The new floodlights and lampposts are so bright that they are causing permanent damage to my eyes. When the kids come out into the light, they immediately grab their backpacks and begin climbing the ridge. The campsite would be a great place for a wild party, but no one seems to have reserved it for that night. They waited for the sun to set, so I called my boss to report that they clearly weren't out for the day. If you dial the new number I gave you, a recording of Kurt's voice will greet you. My park, he stops, and then he questions the issue. Group of kids on an illegal site. I'll go interrupt them right now. I can see their campfire over the ridge should not go outside, make no attempts at contact, and report back immediately if there are any changes early in the morning. The manager arrives on horseback. Did they already leave? Let him sleep. There's no automobile left. Those people are probably hungover. Loudly, then goes inside to make a call while I stand outside and stare up the ridge. When he walks out of the station, he has an AR-15 in his hand and another one slung over his shoulder. I try to stop him as he walks purposefully to his car, a Glock slung over his shoulder. When asked why he's getting out of his car with a jerry can of gasoline, he ignores you and continues to drive. Automobile. He walks up the ridge, and I follow, shouting after him the whole while. That doesn't sound like a good plan, so I head back inside and give the same curt voicemail a call. Yes, the manager went to that campsite, armed to the teeth with a list of questions and a gun. Gasahol. What the hell am I supposed to do? Don't bother staying there and going back up. Obliged to report any changes occurring around the time I begin to two vans, their smoke trailing down the ridge, roar into the parking lot. I hear a dozen heavily armed and armored guys leave in a hurry, so I step outside to see who they are. What the heck is going on, dudes? Everyone's lined up with such military perfection. It's unnerving. Then, a man who appears to be a commander gets out of the car and asks, Which way did you go? I mean, he's up there. I indicated the thickening column of smoke being spread by the soldiers. And I hear weapons cocking as they go. And I start jogging up the ridge. But they don't seem to notice me. I turn to the fans for a reaction. They're big and generic, and they simply ask, Do I? Half an hour later, the response team on the side comes back, dragging the manager. He is handcuffed and yelling, I did what had to be done. Believe me, it's worse than they expected, and we won't be able to put out the fires they're about to throw. When the commander approaches me, I want to stab him in the back and sedate him. Please bring in all office computers, especially those that have hard drives, to show me. I need the two videotapes you mentioned. Once I use them, the doors unlock themselves. 
Written reports from the past few years mysteriously vanish while the place is being looted. The commander personally stores the video recordings in a bag while he inspects the weapon enclosing, scoffs. The commander assures me that they have located everything they set out to find. You need to have a new superior, and it's contained, so phone the number and tell him that. About this to anybody as they leave, and the fire department and a few neighbors. The fire has been contained, and there are no confirmed reports of missing campers, according to the news. The whisperings alone are enough to have this year's campers scrambling for new leadership. Eventually, the new manager's introduction fades from the headlines due to red tape. Fortunately, there are no new campers, and the business hours have been cut even further, so he can see less of us, and we see less of him. New campgrounds have been established, and the station has been rebuilt, which took some time. Located within striking distance of the train station, normal service is resumed after a brief interruption when the manager decides on a whim advises us to install cameras in the area surrounding the station and the camps because there is always someone around. The only wild animals you'll encounter here are raccoons and the occasional bear, and even then, we only let him hang around near a couple out of kindness. The manager spends hours poring over film as I play poker with one of the rookies, vacant but well-lit parking lot, followed by exterior shots of the station. We burst into the office to the sound of screams and find him firmly stamping on the camera. Drives incoherent, babbling along the lines of, Tony was clean and safe, which I don't understand. There has been no recent action, so I'm not going to bother. Calls someone, has the rookie come to the door, and then barks at us to leave. Youngster reports back that, sure, he's demanding a transfer, and they listen in. I just overheard them tell a fib to him to the effect that they hadn't done their jobs correctly and he wasn't ready for this. Hours later, when my manager is leaving the office, I hear him sobbing into his phone. Shoulders sagging in despair, we close early most weekdays and just open on weekends from now on having a complete staff on hand on such days, but only a few people on the other days when campers have to be there. No camping allowed at any of the nearby sites. Visitors are asked to leave, permitted to leave the station after dark, under any conditions, in case of an emergency, dial the Wii randomly assigned nightly shifts by calling the main phone number and following their instructions to the letter. It's beyond me why we can't do anything. I approached the manager about it, and all he responded was, that's standard. Since it is standard procedure to have a watch person on duty overnight, I am obligated to work my nightly shift. Keeping my phone by my ear with a pre-dialed number in case I need to make a call is a dangerous habit. Whenever I need to see what's going on in the dark, I end up pacing around with my shotgun and staring into the bright floodlights. When there are predators nearby, I can hear crickets chirping and it calms me down. My manager gets the short end of the stick and the next night is a long one. He seems resigned to the fact that we must all face our mortality and pass the torch to the next generation. Worst tactical flashlight owner I've ever met claimed he got the device because he is scared of the dark, when in reality, he has no such phobia. I get a call at 3 a.m. and immediately am terrified of the unknown caller. Is a part of the... The only thing I said when I phoned that number was back up and be here in the morning, 
I hear a staccato of gunfire, then silence, then more gunfire, then screams, and then scuffling. I tried calling back, but when a fresh, curt voice answered, I realized the connection had gone dead. Park, I just got off the phone with Dog, and I was wondering what sort of bad news I might bring to you. Did he see anything else? Yeah. I'm serious. I heard gunfire will be back up there as soon as we can. Interesting thanks for the article. His explanation, that they were drawn to the light, makes no sense to me. The park has officially closed, so we must bid you farewell. Nothing existed in the forest for a controlled burn to be planned so that older trees could be cleared to create way for younger ones. Official report regarding the on-duty manager's experience, the general public assumed that bureaucracies get perturbed sometimes in that if I keep asking inquiries, I'll be transferred to, I went to a stunning new park on the other side of the country. There are strict regulations such as not being allowed to use a flashlight or traveling far in the dark. Whenever you find yourself in need of illumination after dark, why don't you just use a flashlight? One secret horror stories, they won't tell me to keep you up at night. And with that, we come to the end of another insightful episode of the AI Unleashed Beyond the Code podcast. Before we wrap up, I'd like to take a moment to express my gratitude for your continued support and engagement. Your enthusiasm and curiosity drive us to explore the fascinating world quality content. I truly value your presence as a listener, and I want to extend a special invitation to become a beyond supporter of this channel. By joining our Patreon community, you not only contribute to the growth and sustainability of this podcast, but you also become one of our valued sponsors. As a way to show our appreciation, we will showcase your name on the next podcast episode, giving you a special shout out. The link will be below this video. As a Beyond supporter, you'll gain exclusive access to bonus content, behind the scenes updates, and the opportunity to engage in meaningful discussions with like-minded individuals. Your support allows us to bring you even more in-depth analysis, expert interviews, and exciting developments. So if you're ready to take your involvement with the AI Unleashed Beyond the Code podcast to the next level, head over to our Patreon page and become a Beyond supporter today. Your contribution will help us continue to deliver high-quality content and expand our reach to an even wider audience. Thank you once again for being a part of our podcast community. Your support and enthusiasm fuel our passion for exploring the limitless possibilities of. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and hit that notification bell to ensure you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay curious, stay engaged, and together I'm Anna, signing off from the Unleashed Beyond the Code podcast. Take care, and I'll catch you in our next exciting episode.